Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and this is the analysis.news and a series I call Reality Asserts Itself. Please don't forget the donate button and the sign up for the mail list and the shares and all of that. We'll be back in a few seconds with Jane McAlevey, the union organizer's organizer. So this is a continuation of my series of interviews with Jane McAlevey, which focuses on the lessons and experiences that helped shape her worldview and build her approach to organizing workers. Jane's the author of several books, including Raising Expectations and Raising Hell, which was named Most Valuable Book in 2012 by The Nation magazine. Jane has organized tens of thousands of workers and union organizers. And if you want more of her biography, go watch part one. You really should watch part one anyway, so because part two will make so much more sense. So Jane, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. So we left off, uh, you emerged as a, as a leader in high school, in university, you get elected president of the student body of the college you're at, and then you become statewide, uh, you're elected to statewide student office. Um, in, in a lot of worlds, uh, you'd be on the way to electoral politics. You're kind of a rising uh, star in a way. Uh, why, why did it occur to you to go into electoral politics? Why didn't you? Yeah, that's an interesting question to start off with. Um, it definitely occurred to me, uh, and I made a very conscious choice that I did not want to become um, an elected politician. That I believed very deeply in being an organizer and in being the person who teaches other large numbers of people how to take bad politicians out of office and how to put far better ones into office. Um, and it was definitely a really conscious choice. And it may also have a little bit at the time um, been a rebellion. Uh, my mother had died right when I was very little, really raised by my father and my siblings. And my father was a politician, as we discussed in the first session, and he really wanted me to become a politician. Um, so there's also some truth to it may be that I chose to immediately go off to revolutionary Latin America, knowing that it would create a bad file at the FBI on me, um, <laughs> as a way to like secure my inability to run for office. In fact, uh, you know, Again, I, I lost my father this year, so I say all this very affectionately, and plus I'm much older. But I remember at 20 years old, when I was leaving to go to Nicaragua uh, to see the revolution, which was still going at that time, meaning the Sandinista revolution when the Sandinistas were still a revolutionary force. I also wanted to learn Spanish so I could speak Spanish fluently. But I actually remember having a pitched battle with my father who said, it won't look good when you run for office if you go to Nicaragua right now. And I said, even better, I'm hopping on a train and hopping on a bunch of buses <laughs> and off I'm going. I almost wanted insurance so that it would be hard for me to make the decision to run for office because I just think, I honestly think, I love being an organizer so much. Um, I love teaching other people how to win in big numbers. And it's a different path. Um, 
You know, organizers don't put themselves in the limelight. It's only at age 50, you know, when I finally started to write some books that I sit down with people like you. I mean, most of my life is like putting very brilliant worker leaders in front of the camera my whole life, right? Mm -hmm. um, I played a decidedly behind the scenes role from when I left being a student leader until many, many, you know, for a couple of decades, no one would have, if you said Jane McLevy, you know, unless you were a worker in a campaign with me, who the hell, who, no one knew who I was, and that was perfectly fine with me. It's now, in my much later years, um, and three books written in eight years, essentially, where I'm desperately trying to teach more and more people, um, you know, that I'm sort of like, you know, maybe a name that organizers know. But anyway, that's, it's a bit of a long way, but it is, a, it was serious. It was a serious thought. And I seriously tried to make an insurance program against being able to run for office. I, <laughs> you tried to, try to inoculate yourself. Just to know just the countries I went to. I mean, the truth is I went, the real truth is the first pitch battle we had is that when I was leaving being the statewide student leader, I was invited to the Soviet Union, and that was right on the cusp of when the Soviet Union was about to not be the Soviet Union. Um, and I mean, literally a couple of years later, right, the Soviet Union, as we understood it, ended. And it was that trip. I had to leave the United States. I had to drive over the border to Canada, right, because you couldn't fly to the Soviet Union from the United States back then. Right. This is Reagan time still. Um, and that was definitely the first guarantee and where my father was absolutely ballistic furious um, because he wanted me to be the first female governor of the state of New York. And he really meant it. Um, and he <laughs> and so you did go to the Soviet Union. I went to the Soviet Union. And oh, wow. Um, well, let's talk about that. So so you're now early. You're 2021. 20, 20. 20. Wow. So what year do you arrive in the Soviet Union? 84. Five or 86? 85, because I go to Nicaragua at 86. So 85. Um, I go to the Soviet Union. Uh, it's actually a crazy story, which we should, forget it. It would take forever. But um, so I well, went. Boil it down. Boil it down. Yeah, what yeah, were your I, I'll, I'll boil down the salient points. I went as a guest of Komsomol, which is officially like the youth party, the communist youth party at the time. They believed that they were going to recruit me to become like an international star. It turned out they had plans for me. They were watching New York. They were watching the apartheid victory, the anti-apartheid victory. Um, apparently, yeah, just to remind, just in case people are to remind people, uh, the campaign against uh, apartheid in South Africa you waged was a big success, and you forced the university to divest and and create a lot of attention. Obviously, global global attention. <laughs> It did. It actually did. I mean, it was global news when we did it. So so they apparently had their eyes on me. I got this invitation um, and I knew that that would actually be anti running for public office insurance. I didn't realize that the that the Soviet Union, as we understood it at the time, would fall um, so shortly thereafter and everything would change and by 1989 and the Velvet Revolution and whatnot. And I would go back, by the way, to Poland, Czech Republic, at the, well, at the time still Czech, Czechoslovakia and do a bunch of work, but we'll get, we'll come, we'll come back to that. Um, but so at age 20, I take a fully paid by the Komsomol, as they're called, uh, the Communist Youth Party, along with 25,000 student leaders from around the world. It was called the World, Congre world Festival of Youth and Students. Um, and there were people from Cuba, I mean, from Latin America, like all over the world. So it was the first time that I really met 
and I was the only person out of 25,000 student leaders from the United States, right? The only one. I had my own translator, my own driver, my own. It was totally crazy. I was being wined and dined. I will, I will cut to the chase and say this. I spent a significant amount of time uh, in and around Moscow. And then they wanted to show me Belarus, right? So I went to Minsk. I spent several weeks in Minsk uh, to like see the farm and agricultural sector outside of Minsk. And I came home from the Soviet Union clear about something very clear. I had no interest in living under their system. Whatever it was once upon a time, I had zero interest in it. You couldn't have paid me a million dollars to move to the Soviet Union. They tried. They offered me a full graduate fellowship and scholarship at Moscow State University. They offered me, they kept sweetening the pot. They also kept saying that my plane was magically being canceled. I mean, I actually didn't realize that they were kind of holding me there um, by saying, that planes are being canceled. Now this is pre-internet. I have no connection to what's going on in the world. The World Festival of Youth and Students is over. And after like the third week when they said that the planes were again not flying because of complicated Aeroflot, Cold War things, I finally started to freak out on them. And I was like, I need to get back to the United States. And they had not succeeded in getting me to join the party. They had not succeeded in getting me to accept their full graduate student package. They had not succeeded at anything except making me think that that was not a model I had any interest in. So I'm super clear. I'm super clear that what goes on in the United States and what has resulted in global capitalism, I'm also completely not interested in. I'm just stuck with it because it's where I live. But there was nothing I saw as the Soviet Union was about to collapse, there was nothing I saw that I, thought was, that I thought was redeeming. In 1917, 1919, 1924, I don't know, you know, it might've been a very different experience, but mid 1980s, Soviet Union, I knew right away they were destroying the planet as were we. Uh, there was not freedom as I expect freedom to exist. Uh, you know, it was not, I mean, I love the subway system, you know, vodka was great. I mean, I'm being, I'm, I'm kidding, but not really, but it was, it was deeply unsatisfying. And I kept raising, you know, so you guys like what's going on in Poland with solidarity. <laughs> so they were, they were start. I, I realized a way to start getting them irritated with me. So they would finally let me go home. Um, and I had to land back in Canada and then come back across the border. So was this disillusioning for you? Did you go with any utopian rose glasses when you went? And did it, other than reaching conclusions about it, did it, I don't know, shift your worldview in some way? No, not, no. I mean, I wouldn't say I went with rose colored glasses. I think my father's politics like mine are sort of, an, not anti, but like we're not sectarian by tradition, we're left, uh, like non-sectarian left. So anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian, anti. So I think I did not have rose-colored glasses. However, what I saw was worse than I even expected, for one thing. And secondly, yeah. And secondly, I, could, I think the part that was beautiful about it, though, was the number of people from the African continent from different countries in Africa who were at the festival and that went on for two weeks. Um, that was definitely the first time I got like a, 
I got like a thousand years of education about exploitation and colonialism in Africa in a way that I could never have gotten from sort of a U.S. education system. Um, and true for Latin America, too. And again, I already sort of, you know, I mean, I understood more than the average, I would say, United States person about colonialization and imperialism in the world. But it was very different with me spending day after day after day meeting Cubans and, and Latin Americans um, and people from all over the African continent uh, and learning about their movements and their struggles. And that made me an even more committed sort of internationalist in my politics, which if you fast forward, I just came from teaching a class this morning and there were over a thousand people from the continent called Africa with Nigerians, Liberians, Ghana, people from Ghana, people from South Africa, people from, you know, so it's almost like my life going full circle. I've always had the internationalist commitment and I thank the trip to the Soviet Union for that. Um, but I also thank it. I, I was also thankful to learn the lesson, which was, I'm not into that system. I'm not into that system. That version of what someone calls socialism, it's not social. That was just an awful system by 1985. So um, I understood that there weren't simple answers, but that we had to keep fighting for more justice. Hmm. Uh, you told me earlier that the classes you gave this morning, uh, th there was 11, 11 languages in simultaneous translation. And what was it, like 4,000 people online or something? 4,300 4, unique IDs logged in and stayed the whole class. And um, we know that in some places where the vaccine are, are breaking out, that there were 60, 70 per room. So we also know it was more than 4,300, but 4,300 unique logins were happening during the class with 11 languages this morning. So I- Learning I how to organize, learning how to organize. Learning how to organize. And it was truly amazing uh, in what we call the fishbowl, which is where I just meet random strangers and we bring them into the Zoom room with me. Um, we had a Nigerian, um, an Indian, someone from the Ukraine, uh, Canada, but a sister from a Muslim sister from Canada, you know, it was just a beautiful textured quilt from around the world. Um, and all of us were having a debate about the very same discussion about how we organize. And it was fantastic. So my internationalism may have been initially egged on a little bit by the time I spent in the Soviet Union. Um, and then, and then you head to Latin America. Yeah. So then I come home and I think, okay, that system is not for me. That system is not for me. My system is not for me. Where else can I go look for systems? You know, cause I'm young. Um, and I pretty quickly make the decision a, that it's going to be responsible for me to learn Spanish. Like I took it as a responsibility. I live in a country, the United States, half of which we stole, you know, we stole from everyone, but we also stole from uh, most of the Southwest and the West from Mexico. Um, and I knew that a lot of people around me spoke Spanish. And I thought as a white uh, woman in the United States, I should learn Spanish um, if I'm going to be an organizer. So I left to learn Spanish. I also left because I wanted to, then I wanted to see the Nicaraguan revolution. And unlike the Soviet Union, the Nicaraguan Revolution, at least in 1986, when I arrived, did not disappoint 
at all. You know, and what, what goes on as the United States destroys the Nicaraguan revolution is, is more than heartbreaking and outrageous. Um, you know, it's where I learned to describe what the United States did to the Nicaraguan revolution and the Nicaraguan people as, you know, I think they say, snuffing out the threat of a good example. Nicaragua in 1986 and 85 and 84 and 83 and 82, right? The, the height of the revolution. I was there still at the height of it. I mean, I went back many times, but that first year was absolutely stunning. This was a country with leadership at the time who were radically committed to everything I believed in. The literacy campaigns were going on throughout the whole country. I was participating with teaching little kids and grownups at the same time, you know, how to read and write in their own uh, languages. I was doing a construction brigade, which was very rare. Mostly it was mostly people from North America were going to like help do co plant coffee. And mostly that was a solidarity exercise. And mostly from what I heard when I was there, all the nice people who were flying in from around the world and working on coffee plantations were actually messing up the coffee plantations because like <laughs> they were they were treating them badly, like they were hurting the plants or like picking too hard. But I was there and Adam, it was weird how I got there, but I was with a, a construction brigade and we were actually in the very north of the country in the war zone, rebuilding houses and schools that were being blown up by the Contras. And so it felt very concrete, very immediate, very real. Um, and the literacy crusade, feeding people, teaching people to read and write. Um, it was an extraordinary time. And that, it, that was a very radicalizing experience for me, realizing that there is another way. And then realizing my taxpayer money and my government was gonna crush that good example. Uh, you know, I was already committed to trying to change the United States, but I became way more committed to trying to change the United States and still am. Uh, that must have been dangerous as well. The Contras were, were they not attacking some of those brigades at times? They were, they were. I just thought, I mean, I think first of all, when you're, tw tw okay, I'm 21 when I go to Latin America, I think when you're 21, first of all, your sense of threat is skewed, you know? you think nothing can hurt you when you're 21, um, which is different than being 56. I'm clear what can hurt me. But um, so one, I think I had a general like, oh, nothing can hurt me. Then Ben Linder was killed, right? So then some North Americans were getting killed on the brigades. Um, and we were in a very precarious position. Uh, you know, we had people with AK-47s, you know, defending us and defending the whole project regularly. And, but I, I didn't think a lot about the danger. I really didn't. I thought a lot about the beautiful community in which I was living and the outrageous acts of imperialism being uh, committed by my own government. And I'll tell you at the end of that, Paul, a very important lesson I took away from Nicaragua, which is why I basically came home and began to become uh, uh, recommitted to being a serious organizer. I was in love with the Nicaraguans. I was in love with the revolution, the whole country. I was hanging out on the back of pickup trucks, hitchhiking with Sandinista military trucks, eating mangoes. And, you know, it was, it was an amazing time for that country and for those people. Near the end of my brigade, I inquired about, could I stay? 
could they find a way for me to, you know, essentially move to Nicaragua? I didn't want to go home. It was so magical. And some very important, fairly high up Nicaraguan leaders sat me down and said, gringa. Okay, I'll do it in English. But they basically sat me down and said, it's been great to have you here. Uh, our people actually don't need you here. We need you to go home. And we need you to go home and change your country. Um, and no one could have, no one could have told, like no other, no one from America could have made that point to me in quite the same way. That's some very serious Nicaraguan leaders like said, we don't need young white people coming here to stay. We need you to come to see it and to go home and build power and change your foreign policy and change your whole country, you know? And that is why I stopped doing sort of the international kind of gravy train. I mean, I did it a little bit longer, uh, but I would very quickly realize that the same reason I didn't become a politician was the same reason that I was going to double down and become an organizer for the rest of my life, that we had real work to do, that we didn't, that the progressive movement in the United States was weak, still is too weak, um, and needs more power, and that that power ultimately is going to come from workers under capitalism being able to do what we did in the 1930s and 40s, which is shut the system down until the rich say uncle. So that, that lesson really got driven home by my year in the Nicaraguan Revolution. It must have been really electrifying uh, to see working people become conscious and fight. I, I don't, it's, it, in a sense, it's exhilarating, isn't it? It was really exhilarating. I mean, it was, I don't, you know, yeah, that was that year. I mean, there were, and then I would go on to spend a few years again, doing work in that of Latin America. And then when 1989 hit, right, when the revolution was destroyed functionally by the United States, um, that was the moment when I said, okay, it's not just that I'm gonna go home to do my work at home to build solidarity with Latin Americans, it's that I'm shifting everything I'm doing to go deep into organizing. Um, and I would shortly thereafter move to the, to the deep South, um, to Tennessee. Uh, to work with ordinary people in the U.S. South, in the South within the North, as I say. Um, that, that was my transition. The destruction of the Nicaraguan Revolution was my transition like back to what I always thought I wanted to do, uh, which was begin to do very serious organizing and spend most of my life with people who didn't agree with me um, when I met them or when I meet them, which is what organizing is about and helping people come to change their mind about the root crisis in their lives. So where do you go next? You go to the South, what, so where do you go? What do you do? I go to the South. Yeah, I go to, I go, so I go to San Francisco to do the, some of the Latin America work when I first come home. Then I really realize, okay, you know, it's time to really dig into the United States. So I, I got recruited, but it was actually out of the Nicaragua. It was out of some of the subsequent Nicaragua work I was doing when I was flying back and forth. In 1988, I would meet, I was helping organize a global conference in Nicaragua, part of a team of a lot of people. And it was to show the global environment and development community. This was a massive undertaking, many thousands of people. Um, so I was a bit player in it. I was just one of the people helping organize essentially a global solidarity conference, but with pretty high powered players from around the world, meaning, you know, elected leaders from many governments showing up to study how far 
the Nicaraguan people and economy and society had come in, at that point, just eight or nine years of revolution. And we were highlighting, in particular, the, the way that the, the, the old Sandinistas, the good Sandinistas, um, the revolutionary Sandinistas, were deeply integrating anti-poverty, popular education, um, and, and job creation, and sustainable environmental programs. It was pretty actually amazing that they were that they were doing, if the world was doing for the last few years, what the Nicaraguans were doing in the 1980s, we wouldn't be facing the climate crisis we're facing. They were actually understanding environmental sustainability and that that went part and parcel with undoing poverty, that there was a link between the two. It was so brilliant. So I'm at that conference. I'm part of organizing a delegation. I was tasked with organizing the delegation for the United States. They wanted the global south from within the global north to show up in Nicaragua. We wanted a delegation of ordinary people in the United States, white, black, brown, poor people who were organizing to make things better here. That whole delegation wound up becoming a highlight at the conference when a lot of Latin Americans realized for the first time, wait a minute, you have all the same problems going on there, right? So it, it winds up becoming this very important delegation where for, for, the, for the ordinary people who were on it from the United States, for the workers um, and environmental justice activists who were on it from the United States got revolutionized. And it made a, it made a very big impact on the conference when, when, when our panel went up and spoke about dying from toxic and hazardous waste, about being paid subminimum wage. Like a lot of people in the rest of the world thought, wait, we're fighting to get that model? Like no way, right? So we were exposing the rest of the world to the limitations of the United States. Um, out of that delegation, I got recruited heavily and relentlessly until I said yes, to move to the South to work at a place called the Highlander Center in Tennessee which is kind of the oldest, most famous community organizing, uh, union organizing, progressive change, what we would call adult literacy center in the United States. Many people don't know about it anymore. Those who do mostly know that it was the place that Martin Luther King would hang out. It's where Rosa Parks received her training before she sat down on the school, on the public bus. Um, at the beginning of the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, it's where the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So most people who do know about it in the United States know about it as a famous central institution where black and white people got trained together under Jim Crow in the US South. So it's famous for that. And that's how I knew about it as a young organizer. What I didn't even know until I got there, and it has a lot to do with my decision to pivot back to trade unions, is that the Highlander Center, when it was first founded in 1932, think about those years, was officially named by 35, the National Education Center for the Congress of Industrial Organizations, for the CIO, for the left of the American trade movement, for the industrial workers of the world. So Highlander's initial significance is so buried by McCarthyism that if people do know about it, they know about its famous role in the civil rights movement, but it played a famous role in the left of the trade union movement. And I 
uh, was put in the library, the beautiful library, it's still there. Um, <clears throat> by the way, the center was burned down again a couple of years ago as during the Black Lives, I mean, in, in under the Trump years, one of the offices was burnt to the ground again. It has a long history of being burnt to the ground by racists. So the building I worked in was called the library and it's an incredible resource and people doing PhDs all over the world will, you know, get fellowships there and study in the library because they hold archives that are incredible from movements in the South. And I would wander into the archives when I was young. So now I'm in my, now I'm 24 or five and I'm in the South and my office is in the library. And that means I have access to the air controlled. I think it was like Ford foundation, some huge foundation grant came to build us proper archives, you know, years ago. And so I would wander into the archives and what did I find there? Organizing training manuals from the Congress of industrial organizations. And I start reading and it's hot as hell in Tennessee in the summer for like half the year. It's hot as hell from my Northern view. So I would just take a chair and go into the archives where it was always a cool-ish temperature. And I would start flipping through not just the manuals from the civil rights movement, but the manuals from the CIO from 1936, 37, 38, 39. And you can imagine where that takes me. So were the manuals good? Well, I don't, I don't know, but they were intriguing. I mean, I wouldn't know until many years later if I could assess if they were good, um, but they were dynamic and they were amazing. And so were the photos. So there, there was a photo library um, and a manual. It was just, there's an amazing array of things that sit in this archive. Um, and it really piqued my interest. I just began to think the pictures, the most interesting black and white photographs would be these huge black and white photographs of trainings that were going on back then. And it would be like timestamped 1941. And there would be a white woman. This is the picture that was like seared in my brain when I was young working in the South. A white woman who looked very proper in very 1940s and a black man. And they were playing a game that they would play um, at Highlander, like a, like a get to know you game. And when you think about Jim Crow and that this is in the South, how radical this was. And the game was they were exchanging, they had a toothpick in their mouth. So each one had a toothpick. So white woman, black man, right? The history of lynching in the United States is like horrifying. You know, all you had to do was say someone looked at a white woman and you'd be lynched. So it's that era and it's a black man and a white woman. These are trade union trainings, okay? And she's got a, a toothpick sticking out of her mouth and he's got a toothpick sticking out of his mouth and they have to have their hands behind them and they're getting close enough to exchange a lollipop. I mean, a, a lifesaver, like a candy across the toothpick. And I began to dream of a world where people were that smart and that brave in the 1940s that, that, that it was going to take breaking down racial barriers at that level before they could unionize the plants in the South. And I yeah. thought, this is coming. You know what I mean? Like, um, I know where I'm going when I leave Highlander. Um, but I'll say importantly, not just what was in the archives, what I learned at Highlander, just to fast forward and keep going, is it's considered a popular education center. It's an adult education center. Um, Miles Horton and uh, Paolo Freire, it's a Freirean center, essentially. So Paolo Freire, the famous popular educator from the Brazilian movement, and Miles Horton, 
who was the founder of the Highlander Center, were best friends. By the time I show up to work there full time, um, they've, they're both basically dying or have just died. They're very old. Uh, the, the book, We Make the Road by Walking, has come out with a conversation between Paolo Freire and Miles Horton about what it means, what it means to teach adults how to reconceptualize their right to have dignity. So it's not, it's not an education program focused on how do you like learn to teach math, you know, to sixth graders. It's pedagogy. It's how do you set the context for a worker, black or white, woman or not, who's been stepped on and beaten down their entire damn life in the South in those years and help them uh, learn to sit up better learn to have confidence in themselves, learn that when they collectivize their power together, they can actually win the right to dignity. Um, so I think that so much, of my, so much of my work in the trade union movement is an integration of all those early experiences. It's why, for example, um, I practice what's called, it shouldn't be radical, but it's so radical. It's why I practice what's called big and open negotiations as a trade union negotiator, I have incredible faith in ordinary people. And I learned to have that faith in general my whole life, I think, but it was really drilled home to me when I worked at the Highlander Center, that if we get out of the way sometimes of the brilliance of the people around us, whose stories we don't know, whose intelligence we haven't heard about, that there is a lot of intelligence sheer intelligence, not just courage, not just bravery. You know, I hate when people say, oh, they're so brave. No, this is not about bravery. They're also brilliant. Like when people shut up and I'm in negotiations and I just like watch 500 workers in the room with me, correct an employer at every turn, not just about every lie that the boss just told in negotiations, but actually the workers really do, it turns out, I know this seems so surprising, the workers really do run the damn place. And the workers really have better ideas than the high paid bosses do, like about how to, how to get the work done. And, and they're told they're stupid their whole life by our society. Workers in the world are told through advertising, through messaging, through from their bosses, from you know, honestly, sometimes the education system when they're young, depending on where they are. The idea is drilled into working class people of any color or ethnicity, that they are stupid and undeserving. And what I learned deep in my bones from, from, from the brilliant mentors in that period of my life, I had brilliant mentors everywhere I went. The mentors in Tennessee at the Highlander Center schooled me hard in shutting up and listening, and figuring out ways to let adults who had been stepped on their whole life come forward and find their voice. And I think I ca I've carried that into my trade union work. And it's why when trade union leaders say to me with such cynicism that it's hard for me not to sometimes want to bat people across the cheek, I'll just say politely, because I really mean this. There can be so much cynicism inside of a trade union movement contemptuous feelings about like, we just need the workers to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, really? Actually, we just need to let the workers do, 
do the work that they want to do, which is change their lives. And when when union leaders, not just in the U.S., all over the world now, right, because I work all over the world, when union leaders say to me, you bring 400 workers into the negotiations room with you, Jane, how do you control the workers? I'm just going to repeat that. The first question I get is how do I control the workers when I'm in a negotiation session? And when people ask me that question, I have to tell you, it is hard for me to smile when I give the answer back, which is like, I trust the workers, they're grownups. Turns out when we give them responsibility, they take it and run with it. Um, and I've never ever been disappointed by having hundreds and hundreds of workers in the middle of the negotiations room with me, never once in my entire life. It's an amazing experience. When we treat people with respect, how smart, and genius they can be. Thanks for joining us, Jane. Let's stop here. Uh, we'll be back again with another segment. And uh, I just have to say my experiences are the same as yours. Uh, uh, you know, I worked, I, I, I was a carman mechanic on the railroad for five years and, and the, uh, and, and I've covered strikes uh, and the, the distance between some of the union leaders and the workers yeah. is almost as big a gap as the employers with the workers. And they see the workers as, as ch dumb children to be manipulated. And the workers see through it. They just, they're just not sure what to do about it. Oh, yeah, they do. I always say, when I'm training organizers, I always say, I say to an organizer... I get some smarty pants who comes, you know, oh, she's, she knows how to win campaigns. I'm going to learn from her. And I get these young people and I real I can, I can realize really quickly if their attitude is wrong. And I say to them, you're on a two week probation with me. I do that to every staff person I've ever hired. And I say, I'm going to set you loose with the workers. And in two weeks, they're going to let me know if you're going to make the team because workers smell bullshit like nobody. Well, the, 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 if, the, if, if it is bullshit, they'll eat that person for breakfast pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. That's right. That's right. Because they're not, workers are not very liberal with each other either. The, the teasing is relentless. And if you're full of shit, boy, you, you, you pay for it. Quickly. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And th this, is, this, is, this is a three decades now life learning. And uh, yeah, I, that's why I just, it's like, I almost cry talking about negotiations because it's so amazing to me. And I get so angry when trade union leaders say to me, how do you control the workers? How do you control them? That word has been said to me so many times, Paul. And I always look like I'm always, I don't even know why I'm so shocked by it. I shouldn't be, but I'm kind of shocked by it. And I'm always like, control them, like control them. No, that's not my job. My job is not controlling workers. My job is empowering workers, you know? and bringing out their intelligence. But for most, for a lot of union leaders, controlling workers is their job. It's practically their job description. Yeah, there you okay, go. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that more in future episodes. So again, thanks very much, Jane. Lovely to see you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button and all the other buttons. And here's some music and we'll uh, join us for the next segment with Jane McAlevey. <laughs>